Hello, I'm Mary, and you're listening to First Pages Readings. In this podcast, I explore reading and celebrate books as cultural messengers. Each episode, I'll read from three books of either fiction, nonfiction, young adult, middle grade, or poetry. Hello and welcome to First Pages Readings, episode 34, and thanks for joining me. Today I'll be reading from three books of fiction. Let's get started. Today's first book is Stories from Suffragette City, edited by M.J. Rose and Fiona Davis. A short story collection, this book captures a diverse range of voices and experiences from a day in 1915 when thousands of women marched in New York City demanding the right to vote. Most of the stories are fictionalized accounts of real people, like Maybelle Lee and Ida B. Wells Barnett. The characters are richly diverse, and their common ground is their commitment to fighting for their right to vote under what would become the 19th Amendment of our Constitution. This is an important, enlightening, and inspiring book. For stories from Suffragette City, here is the first page of its introduction written by Kristen Hanna. I still remember the first time I voted for the President of the United States. It's such a crucial rite of passage, a pivotal pause on the road to adulthood. I remember reading newspaper articles in detail, listening to speeches, asking opinions of everyone I respected. I wanted desperately to be informed. I was in college at the time, at a large public university, and the upcoming election was big news. We painted posters and canvassed neighborhoods and put politics first in the school newspaper. Groups gathered after class to galvanize voters and encourage others to get involved. And then there was the actual day. Walking into the room, presenting my voter registration card, and at last, casting my vote. But did I think about how I came to be casting my vote? At that age, I doubt it, although I'm sure my mother tried to tell me. Now, so many years later, I know how important a moment that was, both for me personally and in the context of women's history in America. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which states that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Like all movements of its kind, the push toward gender equality has been, and remains, a multi-front challenge, but there is little doubt that the right to vote, and to have a voice in the democratic process, is fundamental for success. Today's next book is Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. A story rich in cultural narrative, the book explores boundaries within a person learning to find home while straddling two cultures. Teo, a prisoner of war in Japan during World War II, returns to his homeland with deep wounds. His journey of recovery, of returning to himself and his people, uncovers traditions and ceremonies and deep pain as he travels the road back to himself, back to his indigenous culture. This is a gorgeous book. It's beautiful, poetic language. It's stories within stories 
reside like myth in the mind, and the power of the book's storytelling remain long after the reading is done. The First Page of Ceremony Teo didn't sleep well that night. He tossed in the old iron bed, and the coiled springs kept squeaking, even after he lay still again, calling up humid dreams of black night and loud voices, rolling him over and over again, like debris caught in a flood. Tonight the singing had come first, squeaking out of the iron bed, a man singing in Spanish, the melody of a familiar love song, two words again and again, e volvere. Sometimes the Japanese voices came first, angry and loud, pushing the song far away, and then he could hear the shift in his dreaming, like a slight afternoon wind changing its direction, coming less and less from the south, moving into the west. And the voices would become Laguna voices, and he could hear Uncle Josiah calling to him. Josiah bringing him the fever medicine when he had been sick a long time ago. But before Josiah could come, the fever voices would drift and whirl and emerge again. Japanese soldiers shouting orders to him, suffocating damp voices that drifted out in the jungle steam. And he heard the women's voices then. They faded in and out until he was frantic because he thought the Laguna words were his mother's. But when he was about to make out the meaning of the words, the voice suddenly broke into a language he could not understand. And it was then that all the voices were drowned by the music. Loud, loud music from a big jukebox. It's flashing red and blue lights, pulling the darkness closer. He lay there early in the morning and watched the high, small window above the bed. Dark gray gradually became lighter until it cast a white square on the opposite wall at dawn. He watched the room grow brighter then, as the square of light grew steadily warmer, more yellow with the climbing sun. Today's third book is Hades, Argentina by Daniel Lodell. This novel covers much territory. It begins and ends with Tomas, who returns to Argentina to see the ailing mother of a lost love. But at its core, the story is about the dirty war in Argentina that lasted from the late 1970s to the early 1980s. The story addresses one's responsibility to right action. It's a deep dive into the ethical choices made while living during wartime. And while the reader is drawn into the tragedies and cruelties of an unjust regime, the story also explores love and its most personal and complex intimacies, with language that is beautiful in its simplicity. This is a compelling story that's difficult to put down. The First Page of Hades, Argentina I'd spent eight years officially disappeared. At least as far as I knew. I hadn't been back to Argentina since 76 and even after the ostensible resumption of democracy in 83, no one from the government ever managed to confirm my existence. Only in the ninth year, when I married an American and had to get certain papers in order for my green card, did Tomas Aria return to documented being. But the interval between wasn't merely a bureaucratic absence. I'd shut myself off completely until I met my wife, 
and even then, by our first anniversary, I was already sleeping on the couch. The affair was hers, but the fault I acknowledged tacitly was mine. I'd never been truly present. Kind and available, yes. Committed, too. Even making plans for the long term. A joint savings account, my citizenship application, and most recently, conversations about children. But it was always an effort, a mask I put on. If I blamed Claire for anything, it was that she saw it for what it was and let me wear it anyway. That's one reason I went back when I got the call Pishuka was dying. It would mean a break from our problems. But like all things, it was a combination, a messy one. Thank you for spending time with me today. If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe.